When they had passed through Amphiphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But, we, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they, then they made Jason and the others post, post bond and let them go. It's 8.35. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' faith. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, in spite of swear suffering. You welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report about kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Uh, let's come before God in prayer, shall we? <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you for your word, and we thank you that, uh, uh, we, that we can read your word and think about it uh, here and also next door in the Sunday school. We pray, Father God, that you would, by your spirit, be enlightening our minds and our hearts, that would be changed, that uh, we would be people who are prepared to live with you as Lord of all of our lives, no matter the cost. 
And we pray these things now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The Colosseum in Rome is one of the uh, best known buildings in the world. But uh, what, is, what is less well known is the reason for its name. Why is it called the Colosseum? It's because of a statue. It's because of a statue which uh, uh, used to stand very nearby, a colossal statue which was named uh, after the Colossus of Rhodes. It was a statue that was 37 metres tall. How many stories of a building would that be? That's about 11 stories of a building. Uh, if you want to picture that, think about the statue of the so-called statue of Jesus in Rio de Janeiro on the hill there, that's about 37 metres tall as well. So this was a colossal statue which stood near the Colosseum. The statue was built by Emperor Nero. Can you guess what the statue was, was of? It was of Nero, of course. It was a statue that stood at the entrance to a palace, which was called the Golden Palace. It was a palace which Nero had built. Uh, who do you think he built it for? He built it for himself. Uh, it was a palace which uh, was built on literally hundreds of acres of prime real estate. Uh, real estate which conveniently had just been cleared of all of its old buildings after a great fire had burnt it down, burnt them down. Uh, who do you think lit the fire? <laughs> well, yeah, the rumours were going around that maybe it was Nero who lit the fire. Nero had a different theory, though. Uh, it was the year 64 AD and a new religious group, a um, minority, suspicious Jewish sect called Christians, were gaining a reputation in Rome. It's always easy to pin the blame on suspicious minorities, isn't it? And uh, Nero found it easy to pin the blame on the Christians. And so Emperor Nero had Christians arrested and, of course, they had to be punished for uh, lighting this fire. He had some of them torn to pieces by wild dogs, having dressed them in animal skins. He had some of them crucified. Others were made into human torches and were set alight after dark uh, in his personal gardens. Uh, to which he invited his friends to come and enjoy the spectacle. Now in our day, there are Christians who suffer great persecution. Think North Korea, think Northern Iraq. Uh, how did you feel last Sunday when Leanne shared, with us, which Leanne shared with us about the pastor that they'd met in China who had been sent to work in the salt mines, in freezing cold salt mines, stripped naked, uh, 
uh, for the only reason that he is a Christian. How did you feel? It puts a different perspective on persecution, doesn't it? I mean, we, uh, we um, and thankfully it's not our experience of persecution. Uh, our experience is a lot more subtle than that, actually. <clears throat> For us, uh, it's more that sense of feeling different as we swim against the, the moral tide of our culture uh, and our society. Or it's when we find ourselves on the social outer, even being ridiculed because of our views about Jesus and because we don't share the values of the people with whom we live. Now this morning as we think about issues which shaped the early church, we look at this issue of persecution. Uh, because persecution has been something which has been the experience of Christians throughout the history of the Christian church. And it's an experience which started very soon after the Christian church was established because the Christian church was established on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given and when the gospel was preached and it didn't take long for the persecution to commence. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, the stoning in Jerusalem of the godly young man Stephen uh, led by religious leaders, uh, it kind of made other people feel that it was okay to go and attack Christians as well. And we're told that a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem against those who named themselves, um, who, who followed Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And uh, the chief persecutor was a young Pharisee named Saul, we know the story here, don't we? We know how it was that in God's mercy and God's sovereignty that, uh, the, uh, that, that, that the preacher, that the, the persecutor became the preacher, uh, the, the preacher of the gospel. So as we pick up uh, this issue, I want us to uh, think, uh, I want us to pick up where James left off last week. James, as you recall, preached from Acts chapter 16. And uh, in that passage, we saw that Paul and his co-workers, Paul the preacher and his co-workers, had taken the gospel deep into the Gentile world. And they had travelled to the city of Philippi. Now, this was a few years before the rule of Nero. The Caesar in Rome was... Claudius and the Romans had uh, built a great highway that uh, crossed over from uh, west to east uh, or east to west whatever way you look at it uh, a highway called the Via Ignatia which uh, connected two sides of, of Greece to one another and uh, if you care to have a look at Acts chapter 17 in verse 1, Paul no doubt would have used that highway, the Via Ignatia, uh, to, uh, to travel upon, uh, probably using horses, uh, from Philippi through the cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia to the great key city which exists today of Thessalonica. 
Now, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica provides us with a window into the types of persecution which can be aroused by the preaching of the gospel. Uh, when Paul arrived in Thessalonica, where did, he, where did he head to first? Where did Paul normally go to if he wanted to do ministry? It, a synagogue. I mean, the Jewish communities scattered throughout the ancient world and Jewish communities were centred around their synagogue where they would go on the Sabbath to, uh, to learn from the, uh, the scriptures. And uh, that's where Paul would meet Jews who of all people needed to hear about their Messiah. And he would also meet Gentiles. Gentiles who would go to the synagogue in order to hear about Israel's God, because often these were people who were absolutely fed up with the low morals of the pagan culture in which they lived. And in verses 2 through to 4, Luke tells us that over three Sabbath days, Paul explained the scriptures at the synagogue, and as he was doing that, he preached the gospel of Jesus. Now, friends, the the, the gospel of Jesus is powerful. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. The gospel has the power to take people out of darkness and into light. The gospel has the power to take people from death into eternal life. The gospel is powerful and we see the mighty work of the gospel over these three Sabbath days in Thessalonica. If you have a look at verse 4, we'll see what happened. In verse 4, we're told that some of the Jews were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women, which I take it that means a lot of prominent women. I always thought that was sort of like a quaint English idiom, but it's actually in the Greek. It says, not a few prominent women. So there's a lot of women, a lot of prominent women. They might have been uh, business women. They might have been married to prominent uh, men in the community. But what we see here, friends, is the beginnings of a church. As people have come to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of the Jews who were not persuaded... Uh, who rejected Jesus, became jealous. I mean, they were losing numbers, weren't they? And so what they did was they turned on Paul. They, they went and hired a renter crowd, uh, a, a mob of unruly people, in order to start a riot, in order to discredit Paul and those who were preaching the gospel. They were jealous. And that was, at the surface level, the reason for their opposition. Friends, in the book of Acts, when Jews opposed the gospel, there was often also an underlying reason. And the underlying reason was legalism, a, uh, a self-righteousness. A self-righteousness that says, I go to the synagogue. I obey the laws of Moses. I am circumcised. How, I, I am, I'm okay with God. And how dare you say otherwise? And for them, the message of the gospel is an annoying message. 
because it says, hey, you're actually not good enough. Uh, you need a saviour. And that saviour is Jesus. It's an annoying message because it challenges human pride. It's the same today. You know that sometimes, sometimes the hardest people to reach with the gospel are actually people that you'll find in churches who, because of their church involvement, because of their religiosity, have persuaded themselves that they're okay with God because of what they do. Like the man who once opposed the preaching of the gospel in this church, a member of this church, uh, who was so confident in his own self-righteousness that he said that he would prefer to pay the penalty for his own sin rather than to trust in Jesus. So low was his view of how sinful he was that he thought he could pay the penalty and it would be fine. In Thessalonica, we see another aspect of persecution which was common in the early church uh, because through the preaching of the gospel, as, as I've said, a small church now existed, some Jews, uh, lots of Greeks, not a few prominent women, a new church had been born. Uh, Paul and his co-worker Silas, they, they probably stayed there for longer than the three weeks, uh, the three Sabbath days. And uh, we see that they were staying at the home of a man named Jason. That's a good Greek name, isn't it? Uh, Jason. And so the mob paid a visit to Jason's home in verses 6 through to 9. Paul and Silas weren't there at the time or they couldn't find them. They, they, and so what they did was they, they dragged Jason and some of the other Christian brothers some of the others had been converted. They dragged them out of the house and they took them before the city officials. Take a look at what they said in verse 6. In verse 6, it says, uh, this, this is the charge that they brought these men to the city officials on. They shouted, these men who've caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. See, what was the charge? The charge was treason. The charge was treason. The, the Roman Empire was massive. It was huge. The world had not seen an empire like this, uh, even with the Persians and the Greeks. Uh, much of Europe, uh, right up to parts of Britain, um, <clears throat> uh, down through North Africa, um, uh, out east through Greece and through what we would uh, call the Middle East today, uh, which was called the Near East there, through Iran and Iraq and those kind of areas. This was the, the Roman Empire. It was a massive empire. There were certain advantages in belonging to the empire. Uh, the advantage of being connected. The, the Romans connected people and connected commerce, international trade, through 80,000 kilometres of roads that they built. That was revolutionary. 
lots of races, lots of languages, lots of cultures, lots of religions, all now connected. And the Romans held their empire together with a, I think, a, a good strategy, and that is that they they gave the peoples that they conquered a fair degree of self-rule. Um, they, uh, like here in Thessalonica, in verse six, Thessalonica had its own city officials. Thessalonica was a Greek city. It was a little bit. It had a, a degree of autonomy in terms of its uh, self-government and this was a strategy that they utilised and it meant that everyone got on fine so long as they respected Caesar as the supreme ruler. You get the idea? If you want to hold people close, you give them a little bit of freedom but not too much freedom. They needed to respect Caesar as being the supreme ruler. And friends, the step from being a Caesar to being a god was not a huge step. Um, some of the emperors, not most of them, but some of the emperors, emperors such as Nero and Caligula and Domitian, declared themselves to be divine. Emperor Domitian uh, insisted on being called by the title of Lord God. And he built temples where people could go to worship him. Uh, you see, you could worship whatever God you wanted, so long as you also worshipped Caesar as well. And that became another way in which particular Caesars kept the empire together. On a political level, uh, you obey the Caesar. On a religious level, you also worship the Caesar. Held it together. Christians who refused to worship Caesar often did not survive the experience of refusal. In the second century AD, there was a prominent Christian leader named Polycarp. Um, you may have heard of him. He was burnt at the stake for refusing to, on the one hand, deny Jesus, and on the other hand, for refusing to burn incense to Caesar. He preferred to be burnt himself than to burn incense to Caesar. And when he was given the choice of denying Jesus or being burnt to death, the very elderly Polycarp said this of Jesus. He said, and I quote, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and saviour? He then went on to uh, tell the proconsul who was trying to persuade him to recant of Jesus. He said, look, the flames that you'll burn me with will last for an hour, uh, but the flames of hell will last for all of eternity. Make your choice. Friends, by, by honouring Jesus as being supreme, Christians were often considered to be, to be disloyal to Caesar. But that's a mistake. 
That's a mistake. That's a big mistake because Christians make great citizens. Christians make great citizens because Christians obey God above Caesar. And what does God tell us to do? God tells us to obey Caesar. Um, in, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He instructs the church, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him. Or down in verse 17, Show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God and honour the king. That's what our God tells us to do. We Christians are the friends of good government. We Christians are loyal citizens of the state. But that is because we serve one who is above the state. We serve one who is above Caesar. We put God first. And sometimes that means that we will need to oppose Caesar. When the law of the land displeases God, we may need to pay the price of obeying God above Caesar. Uh, today, with the legal acceptance of same-sex marriage in some parts of the Western world, uh, there, this issue is relevant. Uh, when, when jurisdictions legislate for same-sex marriage, they often uh, do so with the proviso that Christian ministers will not be required to perform same-sex marriages. I'm not concerned about Christian ministers. I'm concerned about Christians who are not ministers. <laughs> concerned about Christians uh, who make their money from the wedding industries, such as photographers, cake makers, reception centres owners and so on, who we're reading about in the media are now preferring to be punished by the courts than to participate in an activity which is dishonouring to God. They're saying, no, we're not going to participate. Call us discriminatory. Uh, tell us that we're breaking the law. Uh, that's fine. We're not going to participate because we believe that would dishonour God. And that's happening in places in the UK and, and states in America and so on. Now, one of the surprising accusations that was made against the early Christians was that they were thought to be atheists. How about that? It's true. Christians are atheists. That was the charge. Uh, and the reason for it is this. In the Roman Empire, there were countless gods, small g gods. And uh, the, from, from the well-known Greek gods like uh, Zeus and Athena and so on, to the pantheon of local gods that were found in every little community uh, throughout the empire. And everybody was free to worship their local god by bowing down to their local idol. No problems with that. You're allowed to do that. And to specifically worship one particular god, well, that didn't mean that you were denying the other gods. You just had your favourite god. <laughs> But when Paul later wrote 
uh, a letter to this young church in Thessalonica. He thanked God for them. And he said that your faith is being talked about all over the world. People, uh, have a look at the passage that's printed, the key verse on your sheets there. He said that people are saying how wonderful it is that, you've tur- that, that you have actually turned away from idols to serve the living and the true God. That these Thessalonians, uh, as the church developed and reached out to more Gentiles, these Thessalonians were turning away from idolatry in favour of turning to faith, love and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Exclusively. Sometimes this caused great persecution. In the 3rd century AD, Emperor Decius was concerned that uh, things weren't going too good in the empire and that must have been because people were not worshipping the Roman gods and so he made it a law that everyone must worship the Roman gods upon pain of death. Uh, This caused great suffering amongst the Christians. Great suffering. Because they knew that Jesus is the exclusive Lord of the universe and because he is the exclusive Lord of the whole world, then he is also the inclusive Lord of everybody. Uh, That his kingdom knows no bounds. That his kingdom does not have a, a border. That his kingdom is for all people of every race, of every language and it's for all people because he's the true Lord, the true God, the only true God. Now in our day, if we dare say that Jesus is the only way to God and that therefore all other religions are false, How popular are you going to be? There's a Christian minister in Sydney who said that uh, the other week in his his church news bulletin and the media got hold of it because he said actually Islam is false and they ridiculed him in the media, made him out to be some far right right wing extremist. If we dare to claim the uniqueness of Jesus as Lord, we will be persecuted. But the heart of persecution is always about Jesus. Take a look at the message which Paul preached over those three Sabbaths in that synagogue in Thessalonica. Go back to verse 2. In verse 2 it says, As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is God's only king who died for our sins and conquered death by his resurrection from the grave. 
And friends, that is a message which always divides people. It divides people because it is a message which says that I am not good enough for God. It divides people because it challenges our pride. Because it tells us two things. It tells me that I am more sinful than I ever dared to believe. But it also tells me that I am more loved than I ever dared to hope. That's a great message, isn't it? It's a message which is worth, worth dying for because it's true. Now, official persecution in the Roman Empire came to an end in the early 4th century. One of the worst persecutors of Christians was an emperor named Diocletian. But uh, God, in his mercy and his sovereignty, replaced him with a new emperor. Emperor Constantine, who in 312 AD submitted his life to Jesus as his Lord. Great moment. The persecution stopped in one sense. Uh, Diocletian, well, the, the building that he was buried in um, actually became a Christian church. Uh, Nero, well, I mean, these days people call their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. <laughs> uh, in the next two talks in this series, I'll speak about some of the great doctrinal issues the church dealt with during the time of Constantine. But in a very real sense, persecution of Christians has never stopped and will never stop until that great day when our Lord Jesus returns. Until then, as we proclaim him as the unique Lord of all, and as we live with him as Lord of all of our lives, we will find ourselves swimming against the tide. Don't be pulled along by the tide. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul wrote, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. That's not what he said, is it? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. And it makes me think that if we're not experiencing at least some level of discomfort for being Christian, then we have to wonder, well, is that really because we're actually not living the godly life that God desires? Are we being bold about sharing Jesus? Uh, is he Lord over every aspect of our lives? Because if so, then we ought to expect a degree of persecution until he comes again. Let's pray, shall we?
Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus who uh, suffered uh, at the hands of evil men uh, because he was obedient to you even unto death on a cross. Father, we know that a servant is not above his master and if that is the way that they treated Jesus, then we ought to expect uh, some of that to come our way as well. Father, we uh, do thank you that you are sovereign and uh, that even through persecution that uh, you, uh, your church is refined and your church grows. Help us, Lord God, to be godly people, to boldly proclaim Jesus as Christ, to live with him as Lord, to be different from our society so that some will look at our good deeds and they will give glory to you whilst others may resent us for that. But uh, we pray, Lord God, that we would put you as number one irrespective of the cost to us personally. And we pray that the Lord Jesus would come and put an end to sin, that uh, we might receive the full consummation of uh, our inheritance with you in heaven for all time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.